from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community, although this particular person I guess could be considered a serial killer. Special thanks to my patrons, whom we've negotiated a new thing so that not everyone has to hear their names, but just know that you guys are dear to me and you are really appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron. Like, share, subscribe, it just might help our little community grow. So this week's podcast is split into two parts because there is just so much information and it is on Yosef Mengele, and I'm sorry if I mispronounce that. And, and of course, it goes without saying that this comes with my disclaimer disclaimer, because in case you've not heard of this man, well, his nickname is the Angel of Death during World War II. He was the doctor who performed unspeakable experiments on people and children in Auschwitz, a concentration camp run by the Nazis. If you haven't heard of this man yet, sit down, buckle up, and mentally prepare, because this man is going to disgust you on levels you aren't prepared for. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Josef Rudolf Mengele was born on March 16, 1911 in Gunzburg, Bavaria, Germany. So, as we do, let's get some context as to what was going on in the world during his mother's pregnancy and his infancy. Let's get into some history for that time. So, a major news story of 1911 was the ongoing Mexican Revolution, which had started in 1910 and raged throughout the year, resulting in the May 1911 overthrow of longtime president-slash-dictator Porfirio Diaz, who had led the country since 1876. By March, such concern arose in the United States over what had become a civil war in Mexico that the U.S. sent 20,000 troops to the border along with 15 warships. At the same time, great advances were made in the field of aviation during 1911, Pierre Prier, a pilot from France, flew a monoplane from London to Paris without stopping, covering the 290 miles in about four hours. To give some perspective, of course, a non-stop flight today takes a little less than 90 minutes. June 1911 saw the coronation of King George V, who remained Britain's monarch through World War I and until he died in 1936. He was Queen Elizabeth's grandfather. For Germany specifically, it had only become a country 40 years before Joseph was born. After three successful wars by the North German state of Prussia against France and Denmark, mostly, 
the empire was forged. Prussia occupied well over half of the area of Germany and having approximately three-fifths of the population remained the dominant force in the nation until the empire's demise at the end of another war in 1918. When Joseph was born, the religious makeup of Germany was roughly 63% Protestant, 36% Roman Catholic, and 1% Jewish. When Joseph was born, Germany's economy was absolutely booming and quickly became an industrial giant, second only to the United States. So, this was the atmosphere that he was born into. His parents were Karl and Walburga Mengele, and he was the eldest of three sons born to the couple, his younger brothers being twins. On Ancestry, it shows that the boys' birthdays were the same. There had been a baby born before Yosef, but it had sadly died just days after being born. Carl Sr. was an engineer and owned a foundry that made farm equipment. This was around the time of Yosef's birth. So, for the area he was born in, in southern Germany, his family was pretty well off financially. When he was just three years old, World War I began, and Karl joined the German army to fight for his country, which left Valburga to raise a toddler and infant twins, and also try to keep the family business going. And it is safe to say that her determination and sort of need for the business to remain successful as well as expand was not lost on the employees who sort of feared her coming into work and would much prefer Carl be there instead. Quite telling, I think. But that must have been incredibly difficult for her, as any of us could imagine. But she was described as quite determined and even managed to get a government contract to help produce a military vehicle that was used on the front lines. This would have obviously increased their wealth quite a bit. In fact, the company is allegedly still around and still provides a livelihood for a tenth of the population of Yosef's hometown, as well as much of the town revenue. The company itself, to this day, has an excellent reputation. Now, the Mengele family was described by a local Protestant pastor as a good Christian family. His mother was a devout Catholic, and her utter devotion did have an effect on Yosef. Now, most of my source material about his childhood comes from the book, quote, Mengele, Unmasking the Angel of Death by David G. Marwell, okay, which I highly recommend. It's a good book. Carl, Yosef's father, after being home for a couple of years from the war, was actually called to return to service for two years to resume his leadership of the business that his wife had so brilliantly maintained and expanded in his absence. We know that she had organized a contract with the government for military vehicles, and they wanted him to take over leadership of that project. So the Mengele business grew quickly, beginning with just 15 employees and expanding to 91 by the end of the war. Due to this, as any of us can imagine, it became a very important part of the local economy. 
Yosef himself would later describe his mother as, you know, coming from a very well-respected local family, and her temperament was, quote, extremely determined and forceful, end quote, where he would describe his father as good-natured and soft-hearted. But of course, we already got this sense from their very factory workers. But the overall feeling about his childhood was that it was, you know, rather pleasant, He wrote about it himself and gave the impression that he felt secure in his place in the world, that his parents and grandparents were in his life close with him and influential in positive ways. They also had some level of household staff that he too indicated he had positive relationships with. People who knew them described Yosef's family as, quote, conservative, Catholic, conventional, end quote. We know that Karl was, at some point, a member of the German National People's Party and was not, at that time, a Nazi Party supporter. Karl was, by the time Josef was around 11 years old, had attempted to bid for a seat on the city council but had not been successful. And though people do condemn Karl for eventually working with the Nazis, It is said that it wasn't really out of him blindly following their belief system and political affairs so much as he was trying to expand his business and in all actuality, the Nazi party eventually accused Karl of buying his seat on the city council. So there's that. But Josef himself had no troubles in school and was actually quite successful It was said that he developed a love for music, art, and even skiing as he loved physical activity. Schoolmates remembered Yosef as a popular young man and an enthusiastic friend. He was highly intelligent and a serious student who showed a very distinct ambitiousness. Whether or not there was blatant racism displayed within the home that Yosef was exposed to is something of a discussion. Sources say that it most likely wasn't to the point of extremism, but rather, quote, the latent cultural anti-Judaism that was completely typical of the Catholic milieu of the time, end quote. It was most assuredly there, but it wasn't blatantly advertised and solely focused on. I mean, racism is racism, but hopefully you get what I'm trying to say. And in 1924, when he was 13 years old, Josef joined the Greater German Youth League. Now, here is where we get the sort of first ties with the Nazis. You see, just years before, this youth league was known as the Youth League of the Nazi Party in March 1922. But then after the Nazis attempted to overthrow the German government in November of 23, the government temporarily banned Nazi organizations. This ban, of course, included the Youth League. However, The youth movement secretly continued, most notably as the Greater German Youth Movement, founded in 1924. This is the one Josef joined. So after the ban was lifted, the now official youth organization of the Nazi Party became the Hitler Youth, or League of German Worker Youth, in July 1926. So again, 
Yosef entered in 1924, and in 1927, the then 16-year-old became the leader of the Gunsberg chapter, which had 60 boys and 30 girls as local members. Yosef later said of this group, after he had organized a summer solstice celebration, quote, We were proud of our big solstice fire, which blazed into the heavens on the ridge opposite the hometown, announcing that a small group of boys and girls today celebrated the solstice with fervent thoughts and desires in their hearts to awaken and arouse the people of their homeland to the holy struggle of liberation from the shackles of the nefarious Versailles Treaty. The flame should liberate us and illuminate our way. They should warm us with the love of our great people and of its high culture, and they should incinerate all discord among us Germans. End quote. Now, those who are not familiar with the Treaty of Versailles, I touched on it in my podcast I did pretty recently about Ilse Koch, the bitch of Buchenwald, if you are interested in listening to that one. But the short and skinny, as they say, is that the Treaty of Versailles was a peace treaty signed in 1919, ended the state of war between Germany and most of the Allied powers. The Treaty of Versailles was signed and it ordered Germany to reduce its military, relinquish some of its territory, pay exorbitant reparations to the Allies, as well as take responsibility for World War I itself, among other punishments. It's very involved, but that gives you the base idea. So the result of all of this was hyperinflation, along with Germany's decreased ability to produce coal and iron ore. With this, on top of war debts, the German government was unable to pay its debts. German workers were ordered to passively resist the illegal occupation of France and Belgium, who were there determined to get their reparations. The workers went on strike, which then shut down the coal mines and iron factories. So you can see how the German economy rapidly declined. And to counter this, they simply started just, you know, printing money, which of course backfired and threw Germany further into the tank while also increasing inflation. So you can see that this was a very big deal and would have been a very big source of contention within the German citizens. It is important to note that this youth group did not accept Jewish people. The way Yosef described it in his diary was so the, quote, characteristic qualities of the German people, end quote, could finally be revealed and freed from alien incrustation. Yeah, he used that word. During his secondary education, he attended a school in Gunsberg that included instruction in Latin and Greek as the basis for European culture. High school for him wasn't an issue, and he did pretty well, though sources all say that he didn't make stellar grades. In the biographical book, it said, quote, His performance there was, at best, average earning him satisfactory in religion, English language, physics, and history, and a deficient in German language, Greek, Latin, and mathematics. 
While his behavior was judged acceptable, his effort and his interest in school were found mm, wanting. End quote. His school records do indicate that while he was in the upper grades of school, he did suffer a series of infections, which included osteomyelitis, which is an inflammation or swelling that occurs in the bone. It can result from an infection somewhere else in the body that has spread to the bone, or it can start in the bone, often as a result of an injury. Most cases of osteomyelitis are caused by staph infections, types of germs commonly found on the skin or in the nose or even in healthy individuals. He also seemed to have suffered with nephritis, which is most often caused by autoimmune diseases that affect major organs, although it can also result from infection. Nephritis can cause excessive amounts of protein to be excreted in urine and fluid to build up in the body, as well as suffering from sepsis, which can be quite lethal. These illnesses caused him to miss a decent amount of school, as we can all understand that it would. All of this did leave him with a chronic kidney ailment. This ailment would prevent him from being able to take over the family business, which, because as he was the eldest son, it would have been his birthright. So his youngest brother, one of the twins, would be the son that would take over the family business, and in 1930, Yosef graduated high school, or what the equivalent of that would have been for him at the time. He was 19 years old. He formally left the Greater German Youth League and tried to decide which direction he should take with his life, and, well, it was stated quite plainly that he had no particular passions or even motivations to choose any path, really. But it was stated that a biology teacher he had had in high school had really been instrumental in inspiring Yosef's interest in science. And that's really all I could find out about his childhood. And while that's a lot more than I can usually find, I also found it strange that, you know, as big of a character as he was in recent human history, that Well, quite frankly, we don't have an account for every time someone had to wipe his ass, but I digress. It seems fairly straightforward to me. I wasn't immediately able to find much about his mother or father's background other than his mother was from a respected local family and that she herself was devoutly Catholic. She was intelligent and a decidedly determined and forceful woman, so we get the sense that, you know, Perhaps she was no-nonsense. Back when it was so rare for women to have any real rights outside of being at home to raise the children, cook, and clean, the very stereotypical housewife of the times, her husband left to fight in the German army as he would have felt was his duty to do, leaving her with three children still in diapers, a house to run, and now a business to keep afloat during war times. And not only was she successful, but she was able to build the family business up even further. So I think it goes without saying that she was most likely a strong-willed, determined woman, and though I didn't find any instance that she was cruel with her children, my instincts sort of tell me she might have been pretty strict with the boys as she felt she might have had to be, you know, to try to keep her world in working order, so to speak. 
But nowhere in the source material does it say she abused or neglected any of the boys at all. Yosef himself described Carl, his dad, as good-natured and soft-hearted. The only real bit of information we have about Carl as far as his demeanor would be that the factory workers were much happier to see Carl walk through the doors than his wife. So this could easily indicate that he was much more easygoing and approachable, but again, this is only my speculation. And it certainly sounds like Yosef had a fairly storybook childhood in that, other than when his father was off to war, which I'm sure, you know, would have been stressful for the family and especially the children, he had a loving and nurturing environment around him, loving parents, loving grandparents, and as the business became more successful and the Mengele's gained more wealth, they hired staff who he also seemed to have had a positive relationship or dealings with. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So then it comes to the elephant in the room, right? Is that the anti-Semitism that was just part of the undercurrent of his family's beliefs. Whether Christians want to acknowledge it or not, Christianity did play a critical role, perhaps not in motivating the top decision makers, but in making their commands comprehensible and tolerable to the rest of the people who actively carried out the measures against Jews, as well as those who passively condoned their implementations. Do you see? Within the German Evangelical Church, the pro-Nazi German Christian movement emerged in the early 1930s. It attempted to fuse Christianity and the National Socialism and promoted a, quote, racially pure church by attacking Jewish influences on Christianity. You see, according to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, Germany was populated with more Jews than any country in Western Europe when Hitler came into power. Germany also had the same ugly heritage of anti-Jewish sentiment as the rest of Christian Europe. The short-lived Weimar Republic that did try to recover Germany's economy tanking, you know, after the First World War, could not deliver Germany from the severe economic hardships it experienced after World War I. Jews had been the Republic's strong supporters, and a few of them were the architects of its construction, a fact that Hitler unfortunately capitalized on. Huge inflation in 1923 and the Depression of 1929 increased Germany's problems. Some leading capitalist families, Gentile and Jewish, managed to escape these problems, but the eyes of the angry populace were trained on the Jews rather than the Gentiles. It's as simple as that. And Yosef's family, his local community, and the surrounding politics were not immune the aftermath of the First World War for Germany was, I think we can all agree, pretty rough for the everyday citizens because the Treaty of Versailles was pretty intense. 
And children, this is how it goes when major world powers decide to make very big decisions because some leader has a toddler temper tantrum or it becomes a dick measuring contest and all of the other asinine reasons for war. But these people in power never seem to, you know, stop and perhaps think about how the everyday citizen will be left to pick up the pieces, how their leaders push propaganda and skewed ideals and how they will result in very real, very violent aftershocks of death and destruction that comes in wave after wave. Now, I'm not going to sit here and pretend to be some political whiz, but I do pay attention and really isn't politics and the over-involvement of governments that is usually the real issue to begin with. Then when these corrupt people in power have the audacity to hide behind archaic and no longer relevant religious arguments using their holy books that they've never actually truly read to justify their actions, well, my friends, this is how holocausts happen. But okay, all right, rant over. So growing up in this environment where the undercurrent of, you know, this is all the Jews' fault would mark and mold an impressionable young mind, absolutely. It would become a part of the code of the fabric of his being. This is not an excuse, but it is a reason, nothing more. So let's get back into it. Now, after high school, the career path Yosef originally entertained was becoming a dentist because... Well, quite frankly, there wasn't one, or at least a reputable one, in his area, and that would fill a need. But he really didn't want to become that specialized, so he decided he would study medicine with an emphasis on anthropology, which is the study of humanity with the goal of understanding human evolutionary origins, the distinctiveness of our species, and the great diversity in our forms of social existence. He also landed on philosophy with regards to genetics at the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich in southern Germany. The consensus is that he wanted to impress his family by being the first to get a degree in medicine or the sciences. And really, his choice of subjects paired well with the then sort of climate in that the rise of national socialism was occurring. So when he finally decided on these particular fields of study, he said himself that this sort of ignited or awakened a real passion, a true passion within him. He actually said, quote, I had no idea then of the many-sided nature of medicine, but the kindled flame of enthusiasm would retain its warmth, if not its brilliant luminosity forever. How was it possible in so short a time to transform someone who was, one could almost say resigned, into someone who was enchanted? End quote. He felt that this had unlocked a potential within him that had already been there, and he was greatly excited to learn as much as he could. And just as Yosef was getting settled into college life in that same city, Another political power was beginning to rise and take over, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or as we all know them, the Nazi Party. And at first, Josef didn't really have much of a political opinion other than he had no quarrel with the ideas that he had been brought up with, which leaned kind of conservative. When he started college, he wasn't even legally old enough to vote, 
but some of the other students on campus were, he would later write, that they had a pretty big influence on him and he started paying attention to this newish socialist party. And this is great timing, one could say, because Hitler was well aware of just how important medicine was, as well as the people who practiced. Hitler again, according to the book Mengele, Unmasking the Angel of Death, argued that while he could do without lawyers, engineers, and builders, he needed national socialist doctors, saying, quote, I cannot do without you for a single day, not a single hour. If not for you, if you fail me, then all is lost. For what good are our struggles if the health of our people is in danger? End quote. Of course, we all know now that he wasn't referring to the, you know, overall health and well-being of the German people. He believed that a physician's first responsibility was not to the individual, but rather the nation. This change in focus allowed German physicians to treat patients in ways that were previously unthinkable without their Hippocratic responsibilities. The president of the very Reich Health Office officially stated that the responsibility that fell to the doctors under National Socialism was to, quote, fight as a biological soldier for the health of the nation. If the doctors fail in this struggle, then no form of government will be able to secure the future of this nation and the destiny of the German nation rests entirely in the hands of the German physician, end quote. And we all know too well what this line of reasoning would lead to in the very near future. You see, Hitler's call for racial hygiene to become the primary responsibility of the physician in the new Germany was rapidly reflected in the medical school curriculum and the very infrastructure of the profession. This translated to course offerings in genetics, anthropology, racial hygiene, and, sit down, eugenics. But for young Josef, while studying, it would appear that he, you know, had a pretty good social life, and yet later in life, he wrote about his feelings of loneliness and isolation, saying, quote, It is precisely this feeling of being alone, the lack of an intimate connection to family, the lack of a true friendship that I felt so bitterly in the first few semesters, end quote. He felt a sense of unrest, dissatisfaction, displeasure, superficial pleasure-seeking, and shallow existence. So after his first year, he transferred to another college, which was not something uncommon for the times, as I read, and Yosef would actually attend five different colleges before graduating with his Ph.D., but it was at his second college that he would finally begin to plug into the political atmosphere. He admitted that he began to feel a strong attraction to the Nazi party and what they stood for. His commitment to the Nazi ideas and complete support of the movement grew more through the science that was to occupy him for the next years of his life. Now, while working as a medical resident, Yosef met and began dating a young lady named Irene. 
1935, the now 24-year-old Yosef Mengele earned his PhD in anthropology, and two years later, he joined the Institute for Hereditary Biology and Racial Hygiene in Frankfurt, where he worked for a German geneticist who had a particular interest in studying twins. Mengele focused on the genetic factors that result in babies born with a cleft lip or palate or a cleft chin. His thesis on the subject earned him a cum laude doctorate in medicine, or MD, from the University of Frankfurt in 1938. It was the year before this that Mengele officially joined the Nazi party. And it is important to know that Yosef also studied under the university's pediatric clinic, Dr. Franz Hamburger, who was quite active in the Nazi party and who also advocated euthanasia or murdering, quite frankly, babies with physical or mental disabilities and routinely sent children to a famous hospital where hundreds of infants were murdered under the Nazi euthanasia program. And really, toward the end of his studies, his status as a young scientist with a promising future was getting noticed by the right people. But as we said before, he had begun to date Irene, and the process of getting permission to marry was a bit grueling. You see, as a racial elite, the SS had a significant interest in whom its members decided to marry, and thus, they established a whole method to evaluate and sanction potential unions— a whole host of paperwork was required, as well as a medical examination proving the absolute absence of any congenital diseases and, most importantly, the capability to bear and give birth to children. To the SS, marriage meant two people of racial equality procreating. If you really want to think about it, it was very much sort of a state-sponsored human breeding program. So while Yosef was receiving his SS military training in late 1938, Irene began the first steps that were absolutely necessary for her to be able to marry him. Her family history was reviewed. Her own physical and racial suitability, everything was scrutinized. She was deemed, quote, very reliable, very fond of children, comradely, meaning not domineering, thrifty, domestic, and efficient. Her intelligence was tested and showed that she was above average and therefore, quote, a model for every German girl, end quote. The couple married in July 1939 when he was 28 years old. Now, Irene would later in her life write about her husband, said, quote, I knew Yosef Mengele as an absolutely honorable, decent, conscientious, very charming, elegant, and amusing person. Otherwise, I probably would not have married him. I grew up in a good, prosperous house, and I did not lack for marriage responsibilities, end quote. Oh, if only any of the rest of us could agree more. The same year, Yosef received his basic training and was called up for service in the Nazi armed forces. Five weeks later, Germany invaded Poland and fired the first shots 
of what was to become World War II. Yosef was designated as important for other service and not sent to fight, but was instead assigned to the Medical Replace Battalion 9 and attended the military physician training course, and he passed. After, his first post was with the Central Immigration Office, where he worked in the health office as an expert in hereditary biology. In June 1941, Yosef Mengele was posted to Ukraine. In January of 42, he joined the 5th SS Panzer Division, Wiking as a battalion medical officer. I hope I pronounced that correctly. He was then transferred to the headquarters of the SS Race and Settlement main office in Berlin, and then he was eventually promoted to the rank of SS Captain in April of 1943. But you see, guys, by this time, the infamous Auschwitz II Birkenau, which was originally intended to house slave laborers, began to be used as a combined labor and extermination camp. Prisoners were taken there by railcar from all over Nazi-controlled Europe, arriving daily. SS doctors were conducting, quote, selections, where incoming Jews were segregated, and those considered to be able to work were admitted into the camp. But those who were deemed unfit for labor were immediately sent to and killed in the gas chambers. The arrivals that were pre-selected to die, about three-quarters of the total, often included almost all children, women with small children, pregnant women, of course all of the elderly, and all of those who appeared to not be completely fit and healthy. And side note, I married into a family who had people die in Auschwitz, so my heart goes out. So in 1943, Yosef applied to work at a concentration camp and was accepted and sent to Auschwitz where he was appointed the chief medical officer and then subsequently given the position of chief physician of the Romani family camp at Birkenau, which was a subcamp located on the main Auschwitz complex. Yosef then supervised the activities of inmate doctors who had been forced to work in the camp medical service. As part of his duties, he made weekly visits to the hospital barracks and ordered any prisoners who had not recovered after two weeks in bed to be sent to the gas chambers. A task that he chose to perform, even when he really wasn't assigned to, was to carry out, again, selections, meaning choosing who would live and who would die, and it is believed that he did this to be able to pick and choose who he wanted for his upcoming human experiments. And this is where we will end part one of the story of Yosef Mengele. This is quite a bit of a backstory to absorb. I think it's a good place to pause, and I don't really want to rush through the next section knowing that we are all waiting for that part, the human experimentation. But before you rush off, I just want to take a moment to truly thank each and every one of you for your continuing support and love of my podcast I am working on making Murder in the News a weekly podcast as well, so be looking forward to that. 
Even though I don't have a way to respond to comments left on the various podcast platforms yet, I keep asking to, I do read the comments and for my patrons whom I've already checked in with, as I've said, there will be some changes there as well. But above all, thank you. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. 